Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five. This week, it's just Julian and I. Hi, Julian. Hi. <laughs> She'll be joining us at the end of the episode, but for the most part, the conversation is just going to be between Julian and I today. So we're excited to dive into this one. This week, we're talking about healthy and unhealthy habits in the industry. So basically for this week, we compiled a list of things that we see as habits that either we've formed or we've seen pop up in the industry a few times that frequently get discussed or talked about. And we're going to kind of work our way through them talking about our experience with these specific set of habits. We'll see if it kind of snowballs into some other ones that we think of along the way or that get brought up. But we know that for these ones, at least, we have some experience with them personally. So the first one that we're going to jump into is caffeine use. And I'm curious, Julian, are you a caffeine a caffeine fiend? I used to be. I um, recently have started to not drink caffeine in the beginning of my workday or even in the afternoon. But mm -hmm. I definitely love a good Monster or Red Bull every now and then. But... I definitely picked up a pretty bad habit of um, shotgunning energy drinks when I was at caves because I was putting in really long hours. <laughs> so I would shotgun a Monster Rehab, the tea and lemonade one, at lunchtime. And it would kind of get me through. And then I would probably have another one around like 2 p.m. Because I was working from 5.30 in the morning to like 8 o'clock at night. So my caffeine use back then was pretty bad. I tried to kind of decrease it throughout the year in our slow season because I don't feel like I need the energy boost but it has become a little bit healthier for me now to just not drink caffeine at all because then I just start craving a good Red Bull and I'm like this cannot be good for my heart yeah no kidding so what does your daily caffeine intake look like now well I haven't had well I just went I just got back from vacation so I started work yesterday, so I haven't had caffeine in the morning <laughs> yesterday or today. But when I was on vacation, I was having like soda, which has caffeine in it. And, you know, that's about it. But like normally, I think if it's a really tired day for me, I'll grab a cup of coffee from the clubhouse and it'll be one cup of coffee and that's it. Mm -hmm. But I don't drink any caffeine after like 11 a.m. Because I want to be able to either take a nap after work or go to sleep at night. That's a sign what that you're you? getting old, I think. Yeah. Well, it used to be when I was a kid, my mom would be like, no caffeine after 6, 6 p.m. Because you won't be able to sleep. And now I'm like, no caffeine after 11 a.m. Because mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to sleep or take a nap. And I enjoy both of those things. My personal caffeine use, I know that it's like so tempting in the mornings to just chug coffee to try and feel alive some days, especially if you've had a bit of a later night, not the best sleep, anything like that. When you're up at four o'clock in the morning trying to prepare yourself for the day, caffeine sometimes sounds like the best option. And I know that it's something that I could easily fall into a habit of doing much more often. And because of that, I have tried my hardest to limit myself to one cup of coffee a day maximum 
And if I have a cup of coffee in the morning, I know that I'm not going to be stopping after work or on the weekends. Same thing. I don't want to just consume a whole bunch as tempting as it is to maybe go for like a nice little coffee treat in the middle of the day or something like that. I just, that's a habit that I have obviously developed because I do drink a cup of coffee a day, but past that, I really don't want to consume much more. So like we have our pot of coffee going in the shop and I'll grab one before I go out onto the course, but that's it. One thing about the cute little like get yourself coffee thing, I've been getting decaf. So like even if I do like treat myself... Because when I was home, me and my best friend, we went to a cute little coffee shop and we both got decaf coffees because it was like 4 p.m. So we were like, we have to sleep tonight. But it's also (laughs) like if I go get coffee after work or if I'm in Target and I want to get a coffee there, I just get decaf. I'm like, no caffeine. I just want the little treat to treat myself. Yeah. Can I honestly say that has never occurred to me to do that? Yeah. And it helps with anxiety too, because sometimes or most of the time caffeine makes me really anxious. So if I don't want to consume any caffeine at work per se, we have decaf coffee at work. So I just get decaf, which is what I did today. I just got decaf. Yeah. And then it like still gives you the nice like warming and still gives you the nice like taste good and stuff like that. Feels good to drink it, but it doesn't give you the jitters. But does it... I'm curious, does decaf coffee still, like, make you have to poop? Yes. Okay. (laughs) It's the coffee beans that, like, get it going. (laughs) It's not the caffeine. Cassie's not here. Jillian and Natalie are going (laughs) off the rails. Being honest and transparent. (laughs) So kind of hand-in-hand with caffeine use, and especially excess caffeine use that we can sometimes see... I feel like it's not uncommon to find a person or two on a course who almost always has an energy drink in their hands. And I know that we definitely have that at Country Hills. It's like people like it. They feel like they need to get it through the day. Caffeine is addicting, that sort of thing. But yeah, so it kind of started when I set up like my sober goals, which was to rehydrate my whole body because I've been dehydrating it for so long. So I kind of made a goal to drink a gallon of water a day and I carry around a big hydro flask that's 40 ounces. So it's about three and a half water bottles full. So I always fill up my water bottle in the morning right away. And then I try to drink one and a half full water bottles before lunch. And I usually get pretty thirsty once I start doing my first job. And I'm always really thirsty in the morning. I think a lot of people are. Supplement their thirstiness with caffeine. You know, your first drink of the day is coffee or it's a monster or an energy drink or whatever. My first drink of the day is water, which I make sure when I, as soon as I wake up before I brush my teeth or anything, I always drink a bunch of water. And then when I get home, I'm constantly refilling my water bottle. And yeah, I'm pretty much drink close to two gallons, more than a gallon, but two gallons a day. My pee is nice and clear. (laughs) Transparent. Transparent. I mean, apparently it's not supposed to be like super clear, but maybe I'm drinking too much water. But in the industry we work in, I feel like a lot of people don't drink enough water and I would rather be overhydrated than dehydrated especially Mm -hmm. working out in the sun all day because 
that's not ideal. Yeah, I think you're looking for that like light lemonade as like a shade yeah. goal. Yeah, I'm at a light lemonade right now. 12 water bottles worth of water, which is a lot of water. And it's good for you. Like water is great. You can't live without it, literally. So. Yeah. The biggest thing for me in trying to stay hydrated, I definitely don't drink as much water as I should, but I have started to drink a lot more water, especially at home, just by having some receptacle of water on me at all times. And people are going to knock the Hydro Flask, the Stanleys, the whatever, but I bought a Yeti, a Barbie pink Yeti that I keep with me literally all the time when I'm at home and I will drink two or three a night easily just by having it nearby because it's there and it's handy. And I think that that's one of the biggest things that people can do at work as well to increase their water intake is to just have a fresh water bottle nearby. Have one that you take only out on the golf course with you because I found if I was taking it back and forth from home to work, I would forget it somewhere. It wouldn't get filled first thing in the morning. I'd leave it in my car, whatever. So now I have one that only stays at work and I have my Yeti that only stays at home and I just try to keep them filled and as much as possible because that's the easiest way is to just have it on you. Keep that thing yeah, strapped. I, yeah, I have a work water bottle, which is a 40 ounce hydroflask that I accidentally ran over with my sprayer. So it's a little less than 40 <laughs> ounces. But so that's my now dedicated work water bottle because there's a massive dent in it. And then I have my at home water bottle, which is again, 40 ounces. And it's pretty and I got pretty stickers on it. And I don't know, I just, it's more enjoyable to drink water out of my pretty water bottles than a plastic water bottle. Like one that you just toss away. It's like, I don't want that. I want mine with my straw and my stickers and my pretty color. And yeah, 100%. You just feel good about, yeah, you just feel good about you know, you're drinking water and you look good doing it because you got a pretty water bottle. And I don't know what it is, but the water receptacles with a straw, I use way more often than one without. Like, what is that? There has to be some kind of science there, right? It's just like more satisfying. I feel like it's easier to chug too. Like when you have a straw rather than just like mm. guzzling it. It's just a more enjoyable sip every time. It's I just prefer the straws over anything. It's so true, because if I have, like, if I take a glass of water around the house with me, I'm never going to drink it as much as no. my Yeti with the straw. I don't know what it is, but it works. It's like... Yeah, uh, and it's good for the planet. I mean, we're not throwing out hundreds of plastic water bottles, just refilling mm -hmm. the same one. And reusable straws are in there, you know, it's not just flimsy plastic one. It's those nice, like, thick plastic ones. Exactly. Reduce, reuse, recycle. We talked last week about some of the unhealthy habits that we've formed personally just by feeling like we have sort of a poor work-life balance. And one of mine was my lack of the most important meal of the day, eating breakfast. Guess what? Still haven't done it. But <laughs> I'm... I'm curious, Julian, if you eat breakfast, and if you do, can you share your tips and tricks on how? Because I don't. Um, I don't eat breakfast. <laughs> We're really missing Cassidy. She's the only one that eats breakfast out of the three of us. Um, That's true. I don't 
Yeah, when I wake up in the morning, my first thought isn't food. It is to get in my car and drive to work so that I'm not late. And so I'll get hungry like before lunch. And we take lunch at like 10 a.m., which is breakfast technically because it's so freaking early. But like I'll get hungry around like 8, 8.30. And like the clubhouse, there's like free granola bars you can grab when you get your free coffee. So like sometimes I'll go up there and grab it. Most times I just stick it out until 10. And then I just go ham on my lunch. And then I have mm-hmm. dinner. But I don't eat breakfast. I don't have any tips and tricks for it, honestly. Because I'm not really that hungry at 4.30 in the morning. And That's sometimes I find... Sorry. Sorry. Sometimes I, <laughs> you go. Sometimes I find, like, when I eat, like, right away, like, it just upsets my stomach. Like, I get nauseous. Like, the food, yeah, it tastes good. But I can't, like, swallow it. Because it's... 4 30 in the morning and my body is not ready to ingest food at that time to do but i've been saying that for years now and i've never eaten breakfast before work so i don't think it's going to change in 2024 no it's not a resolution or a personal goal of mine because (laughs) i'm not setting myself up for failure like that to be completely honest but some things that i do think about something that cassie said last week actually was how she'll just like have a couple packs of oatmeal to have at the shop when she is feeling ready to eat in the morning. I think that maybe that would be a successful way to kind of sneak some breakfast in before starting the day. Or like you said, being able to grab a granola bar or something like that. So maybe keeping a small stock of that kind of stuff at work would be kind of a successful tactic for me because clearly getting something before I leave the house is not is not working for me whatsoever. Also, like, I don't want to wake up 30 minutes earlier to make a whole breakfast. I don't want to do that. I, I prioritize yeah. my sleep over eating breakfast. But I feel like a lot of people do that. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. And if we're brushing our teeth in the car on the way to work, we're clearly not getting up early enough to make and eat breakfast before we leave. I have brushed my teeth the two days that I've been to work this week at my house. So I call that a success. That's a win. That's a win in and of itself, for sure. Kind of along the same lines of, and kind of what we can do to maybe up that nutritional value a little bit or provide ourselves with something that helps us feel a little bit better going into the afternoon than maybe you're energized and less sleepy after lunch. So I'm curious about what your lunch habits look like at work. Eight slices of pizza and then go back to work because that sounds miserable. <laughs> Generally, I we write down our lunch in the morning when we get there. And depending on the weather depends on what I'm going to eat and what I assume my task is after lunch. So right now, it's cold and it's rainy and there's not a lot of... Um, extreme manual labor that I have to do after lunch so I can go for a heavier meal. I've been getting the burger and fries. Very filling. Holds me over until dinner time, which is great. But on the hot days, I opt for a salad or a wrap or a sandwich and side salad or, you know, sandwich and fries kind of thing. Our sides are like kind of mix and match, which is nice. Like you can get fries, you can get fruit, you can get salad. You can get soup and you like pick from one. I usually either do a side salad or a side of fries, but it's all just dependent on what I'm doing. 
how long my shift is going to be and how hot it is outside. Because I sure as hell am not getting pasta if it's going to be 95 degrees outside and then go back to hand watering greens for another four hours because that sounds awful. I would be so tired after that. That's like, that's like a sleep meal. Like you eat pasta when you want to sleep, not when you want to go hand water greens. So that's not ideal for me at all. Yeah. Having to choose lunch so early in the day. And if I know that my morning is looking pretty busy and I'm not making it back to the shop by the time lunch has to be ordered, you know, you have to decide what you're going to be eating at five o'clock in the morning before you go out onto the golf course. And sometimes the thought of stomaching a burger and fries or a salad at five o'clock in the morning is like the most unappetizing thing. So that for me is tricky. And I find myself texting whoever's ordering lunch sometimes in the middle of the morning when I've decided what I actually feel like I'm able to eat for lunch instead of writing it down, which maybe isn't the most considerate thing, but it is just a little bit more reasonable than deciding it so early in the morning. For us, we kind of have a limited staff menu that we can choose from. And there's been some conversation just about how to, one, eat something that you like every day, vary your meals, that sort of thing, and not feel like absolute garbage after you eat lunch, because that's a really tricky one. Especially when your options are chicken fingers, burgers, buffalo chicken wraps, those sorts of things. So there are a couple salads on the menu, and those are definitely good to get in the mix, especially if you add a protein to them. The thing that I always struggle with, though, is unless there's a little bit of an addition of carbs like a side of garlic bread or something to go with it, I don't find that it satisfies me for as long as I would like. And since we eat lunch so early, dinner isn't until a reasonable time. You know, usually once Alex gets home, then we'll have dinner together. And that's at like a quote unquote normal person time who's not running off of a 10.30 a.m. lunch schedule. Then in between, it's really easy to snack or try to fill up a little bit on another meal. The easiest thing that I find to help balance that a little bit is to just choose a salad side instead with whatever main I'm getting. So if I get the chicken fingers, I'll get Caesar salad with them or the wrap, I'll get Caesar salad with it or that because it helps me feel a little bit better than also having that main plus fries and it keeps me a little bit more full for longer than having an entree salad at lunch. Yeah, I kind of came into that issue where I wanted something lighter. So I was getting the chicken Caesar salad every day, but I'd be hungry after like two hours of work and I'd be like, mm, we still got five more hours to go here. Like I can't be this hungry. And then they added a chicken Caesar salad wrap to the mix where you could get a side of fries. Because I tried to order a chicken Caesar salad with a small side of fries because I needed, like, the carbs to, like, 
pulled me over. That's what I needed. And they were like, you can't do that. And I was like, well, you added the wrap now. So now I can get the chicken Caesar salad wrap with fries. So that was like my go-to summer meal. Cause I was like, I get the refreshingness, the lightness of the Caesar salad wrap. And then I get the fries that hold me over for until I leave, mm -hmm. which was nice. Yeah. The thing is, well, I don't know, maybe this is like a semi broke 20 year old talking, but I don't really want to feel unsatisfied from my clubhouse lunch because I'm kind of like, I've had a couple days where we had soup on the menu. So I did a BLT and soup or something like that. And that's a very light lunch. And I would feel hungry after a couple hours. And then I'd be like almost bummed out that that was what I chose for lunch because I was like, man, like that was my lunch option that I chose for myself today, but it didn't even fill me up. It didn't satisfy me. And now I've got to go spend my own money on more food after work. I know that feeling. I'm like, damn, I should have ordered something else so that I'm not hungry when I'm going home from work because I'm like, well, I'm not going to make dinner until close to like seven o'clock. So it's like, I've got a long stretch here. It's like, I don't really want to make a meal when I get home and have like second lunch mm -hmm. or go buy a meal. Like, I just want to be satisfied from my one meal. Mm -hmm. So yeah, finding that balance with something that sits well, tastes good, you don't mind eating it, and actually keeps you full until you're ready to eat dinner. I find like that is the biggest. You almost have to make a compromise every now and again with what yeah. you're deciding to have for lunch. 100%. And it might not always hit the desired idea of nutrition, but at least you're satisfied from it and happy after yeah, you've eaten fueling, it. Fueling mm -hmm. your body because you do have to go back to work afterwards. Yeah, exactly. And everyone has to decide individually what that means to them and what that looks like to them because some people aren't going to want the side of fries no matter what and that's fine but then they maybe have to choose a different a different option or add a protein or whatever it is to help find that balance because running on a half empty tank through your day of work especially when we do what we do it's not the option either no not the option at all no that just makes makes for a miserable afternoon a hundred percent and then after you get home for the day and have your dinner depending on what time that's at. The kind of thing that really rounds out your day is your sleep and then what that looks like for you being able to get up and go to work the next day. So everyone's heard the recommended eight hours of sleep. Do you hit eight hours of sleep? What's not. your sleep schedule look like? <laughs> I've, oh God, it's so all over the place. I have really bad insomnia, so... I try to be like in bed ready to like sleep by 9.30. Like 9.30 is like my cutoff time. It's like TV's off at 9.30. Like maybe we'll read a book. But other than that, it generally takes me close to an hour to fall asleep. So I've tried to be in bed at 8.30, but I find that, I don't know, my body is weird. It's like it can't go to sleep until 10.30. So I'll just like lay there for two hours until 10.30. So it's about like six and a half hours of sleep a night for work. Sometimes I do the long haul sleep, which is where I get home. You know, I shoot some shit or just 
do some like random cleaning stuff until like five and then I just go to sleep to take a nap but then I just don't wake up until the next morning so I get like 14 hours of sleep which happens like once every like two weeks and that's like my sleep reset and I know that's probably not the best thing for my body but I love sleeping I just wish my body would be like let's go to sleep like come on so usually like six to seven hours a night is what I'm looking at I wish I could hit like 10 but I would have to go to sleep at like 7 because I do wake up significantly earlier, like between 4.15 and 4.30 every day. So, mm -hmm. that's, yeah, it's, it's not ideal. But on my weekends off, I do sleep in. I force myself to sleep in. You know, when your body like wakes up without the alarm and you're like, not today. We're not going into work. I'm like, we are mm -hmm. going back to sleep. We are sleeping. We are getting more than 10 hours because that's important. Yeah, the reset on days off or the almost catch up. I know that you yeah. can't technically like catch up on sleep or you can't store sleep or anything like that, but it just feels like yeah. it feels better when you get those extra hours on the days off. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mine varies greatly. And the thing that I find that I struggle with so much is during the summer when we have to be up so early, because I know that you guys are year-round pretty much the same times, but us, we fluctuate, right? So to go to bed at kind of a later time and still get eight hours of sleep is reasonable for that to happen because there's nothing happening that late at night anyways. Like, it's sleep time. But during the summer, the biggest thing that I struggle with is going to bed early enough to get eight hours of sleep, there's still stuff going on. It's dinner time, or you could go to a patio, or it's still light out. And so you could be hanging out or seeing friends or just spending time that you don't get in the morning because you're up so early and off to work that you can use that almost to kind of make up for it in a way. You know, Getting home from work as early as we do gives me an opportunity to reset and hang out for a little bit, do some stuff around the house, finish up school, and then I'll be able to cook dinner and stuff like that. But by the time Alex is home, I want to be able to hang out with him for a little while. And then that pushes my sleep later and later because he works closer to normal people hours. <laughs> so I think that that's the biggest thing that prevents me from getting the quote-unquote eight-hour requirement, especially during the summer, is I almost want to make up for that lost time that I wouldn't get at any other point during the day. It's a trade-off because I get the at-home time from 2.30 or 3 until supper time, kind of, to be able to do stuff, but especially when I've been in school up until this point and continuing into next semester, it feels like that takes away so much of that free time as well. So then I want to have it after dinner, which is when I technically should be going to bed to get eight hours of sleep. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I feel like because we work around, we're surrounded by people when we're at work all day, every day. When I come home, I kind of like to be like a hermit in my room like I need like the time for myself to reset like to keep the peace so sometimes if I'm watching a show or I'm reading a book I kind of get like FOMO of just being able to sit and watch a show until like you know this episode is over but the episode is going to trail until like 10 30 or 
it's going to be too late and I'm not going to be able to finish this movie or I'm really into this book and I want to read to the next chapter, but I have to wake up in six hours. So it's like I do fall into that a lot, which I'm, I always regret the next morning because I'm so exhausted. But it's like, when am I going to be able to take that time for myself to just like sit and like just be by myself and respect my own time that I'm surrounded by people all day I spent all day outside like I just want to be inside and like watch Grey's Anatomy or read my Akatar books like that's all I want to do but then I always end up pushing it a little bit and then I wake up late and brush my teeth at work so it's a cycle yeah and that was going to be my next question which is like with kind of that decreased sleep that it sounds like we both get how do you find it affects your day how do you find your functioning with it i'm always with my decreased sleep i'm definitely more prone to pushing the snooze and then rushing in the morning which i hate doing i hate rushing in the morning to go to work it just it starts off the day on a bad foot because i'm anxious to get to work on time and then i get there and i'm like oh we made it 10 minutes before 5 30 i'm like every time i look back on it and i'm like I don't even think you breathed for your whole drive into work because you were so anxious about being late. And then it's like, you start the day off on a bad foot. And even though I'm tired and I wake up late, I feel like I'm still just as tired as I would have been if I would have woken up at an earlier time. And then I feel like the burnout kind of builds up because if I'm only getting six hours, six hours, six hours, it's like, it's not fulfilling my, my sleep needs. So then I'm starting to feel tired faster than I normally would, which then brings in the caffeine where I'm like, oh, maybe I need to drink more caffeine because I'm super, super tired and I'm falling asleep over here. And then I forget to do things like drink water and then it all spirals back into each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is so interesting how one thing affects the rest so much or affects other things so much and it could be the same way where like we were saying if you have a heavy caffeine use and then that's keeping you up at night well now you're tired from that and relying on caffeine more and it just kind of keeps going so trying to establish a baseline of what the minimum that you need is as a person and maintaining that is really really tricky and for me i only find that i'm gonna force myself to go to sleep and try to be better about getting more hours of sleep or something once i've already reached the point of knowing i'm not getting enough sleep so for me sleep is definitely the thing that gets sacrificed i think over everything else and it's not sustainable and it's why i end up coming home and wanting to just take a nap after work or why i am able to sleep until 1 p.m on my days off and then that keeps me up at night more for the next day of work so it kind of all tumbles into that strange effect and we do keep odd hours compared to so many other people like how many cars do you see on the road on your way to work 
versus on a weekend or if you have a Friday off or something and you're out at nine, how many people do you see then? So trying to find some kind of place where you're able to do all of the things that you want and maintain a decent amount of sleep. I personally have not got there yet. <laughs> and if someone listening has, please let us know what your tips and tricks for being able to kind of maintain your work lifestyle, your personal lifestyle, and get a decent amount of sleep bar because clearly Julian and I don't have that piece figured out. We need it. Please let us know. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're out here not sleeping. <laughs> Definitely not enough. Ugh. And then kind of talking about how that affects our day-to-day, you know, we touched on quite a few different things already, and I want to talk about some things that kind of, at least in my opinion or in my experience, don't get considered as a healthy habit to have or as something that's as important as some of the other things that we've maybe talked about, especially in our industry and with the things that we do. So the first one that I want to ask you about is sunscreen use, because I'm a very pasty person and I have some opinions about this and I know that not everyone agrees with me about the importance of it or things like that. So I'll kind of get into my thoughts, but I'm curious about yours. If you use SPF, how much you use, how often, what that looks like in your day to day. I use SPF, especially on my face. Very specific about my face sunscreen. I don't want any wrinkles and we're out in the sun all day. So that's very important for me. I use SPF 50 PA++++ on my face in the morning. And then after lunch, I reapply it on my face, neck, ears. Um, in the this time of year, I'm generally not taking off my hoodie. So my arms aren't exposed. But when my arms are exposed, because I have to wear pants, so I don't put sunscreen on my pants because no one's seeing my pasty legs. It's just not how it's going. But for my arms in the summertime, I always have sunscreen in my cart. I slather it on. I am not a pale person. I get pretty dark, even with sunscreen. Got a little Native American in me, so it just, I'm, like my summer color is my winter color. It kind of just stays dark. But, um, so I still get like tan, but I'm still protecting myself from the sun because one, I don't want skin cancer. And if I'm going to be, or because I'm going to be in this industry for the rest of my life, I'm going to be exposed to the sun and other elements. And it can be really dangerous, especially when you're older. So I just protect myself now because that's important. And I don't want wrinkles. Who wants wrinkles? I don't. My dad doesn't wear sunscreen mm-hmm. because he's 57 and he's like, I don't need it. He doesn't wear a hat either. I wear a hat every day to protect my face from the sun and my scalp because if you've ever had your scalp burned, it is not pleasant. It, it hurts, hurts so bad. And it peels. And then when you go to shower, like even like cold water, it like burns your whole fucking head. It is mm-hmm. so awful. But, like, I look at his skin and I'm like, your skin looks fine. But I'm like, you have, you know, been in this industry for a long time, 20 plus years. I was like, it's got to be common knowledge to put on freaking sunscreen when you're out in the sun for 12 plus hours every single day. 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that are just like, oh, I don't need it. Or the chemicals will end up giving me cancer, not the sun. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you heard of UV? <laughs> yeah, our superintendent has had it three times since I started working at the course. Has he started wearing sunscreen? No. For me personally, I know that it's not something I can mess around with because both of my grandparents on my mom's side have had skin cancer. And to varying levels of just knowing that that is prevalent within my family is a huge concern of mine. And then knowing that I am very pale is a concern of mine as well. (laughs) And so... I put on sunscreen daily. I carry a stick sunscreen with me, actually, in my bag, um, because I have one of those little Lululemon bags. And so I take that out on the course with me every day, and it has a 50 SPF stick sunscreen in it. And I find that that's really easy for me because I know it's not going to leak in my bag, and it's super easy to just apply it. I have been asked multiple times if I'm putting deodorant on my face, which, (laughs) no, I'm not. And it seems to work really well. And, of course, tops of ears and stuff like that, so important. Hats are part of our dress code for our crew. And part of our safety equipment, which we'll get into in a second, is a bump cap inside the hat. So we have to wear that at all times when we're out on the course, no matter what. Which is good, because that forces me to cover that part, at least. For the most part, in the mornings, our mornings are pretty chilly throughout the year. We've gotten to a point where we have some warmer mornings, and wearing shorts and stuff like that out onto the course first thing in the morning is still pretty uncommon. So, for the most part, I don't sunscreen much else than just my face in the mornings. But after lunch, 100% of the time, I'm always going to have sunscreen on my arms and legs if I if those parts are uncovered when I go out onto the course. Something for me, additionally, that I always want to protect is I have tattoos down one of my arms and on my leg. And you have to put sunscreen on them, otherwise they're going to fade and they're not going to look good. So... It's an easy sort of reminder that, like, I have this investment and I don't want to get skin cancer. So it's like two birds, one stone with the sunscreen for me. There you go. I have one tattoo and I, even if I don't have, I mean, I'm like literally like squeezing the bottle. I'm like, stay where you are, please. Thank you. Yeah. And we provide sunscreen at the shop, which I think is something that's really cool that we do that is very low cost we just get the like industrial sized jugs from home depot and we keep them on a shelf in the shop for everyone to use and in the afternoons it's pretty nice because you'll walk out of the doors of like the office side into the main area of the shop and there's like a sunscreen party happening there's like (laughs) 15 people are all crowded around using that sunscreen And if we didn't provide it for them, I honestly believe that it would get used a lot less. I don't know if people would bring their own. I know some people don't like the stuff that we provide, so they find it kind of greasy and that kind of stuff, which is totally understandable. So they bring their own anyways. And I think those people still would, but the people on our crew who kind of rely on us having that there, I think that it's a huge benefit 
It doesn't really cost us that much. We just have to buy a couple drugs a year and we're providing that important part of protection for them. Yeah, that's a that's a good thing to have. I think we have a jug. I'm not sure, but Phil always has a tube with him because he's pretty pale. So in the summertime, he's always slothering on sunscreen. And you know, it's really sunny when he brings out his, I call him his fisherman hat because it's not the normal, it covers all access of the sun to his head. And you know, it's sunny when Phil's got his fisherman hat on. He's protecting himself. The other thing that I find is really important is SPF lip balm. My lips get really dry winter, summer, no matter what. I always have lip balm on me, but it always has SPF in it, no matter what time of year it is, because another thing that's really painful is if your lips get sunburned, it is miserable. And no one wants skin cancer on their lips either, because that sounds miserable. Yeah, no kidding. And SPF lip balm is just as readily available as every other kind of lip balm. It's in the same section at the store. It just has SPF in it. It doesn't vary in price at all. So it's like literally one of the simplest things that you can do is pick one of those up as well and use it. Something that I had never really thought about, but my sister brought up that she used um, during the summer as a tool for herself My sister has also worked on a golf course for a couple of years. She works in a maintenance crew as well. And she uses the UV index on her phone in the weather app to kind of indicate at what point she knows she should be putting on sunscreen. And so as soon as it gets over a four or five, she's always going to sunscreen up, but knows that she tans a little bit more easily than I do. So for me, it might be like a three, but (laughs) she knows that that's when she has to put sunscreen on and utilizes that throughout her day. She'll kind of check in the morning, check again at lunch, whatever it is. But I think because of the hours that we work, it gets so warm during our first shift and the sun comes out and is bright during the morning shift. I think a lot of people think that they can last until lunch and then maybe put it on at lunch, but that's not safe either. If the sun is out, it's time to put sunscreen on. Yeah, that's why I do it right when I wake up. And I also use the UV index on my phone too. Santa Cruz this summer, we had, I mean, our UV index in the summer was 12 for a couple months. That's very high. That's very dangerous. I get a notification on my phone when the UV index is high, when the temperature is going to be high. You know, it gives you like the warning and it's like load up on sunscreen because it's not safe for your skin or for you. No, it's not. And so I found a golf course industry article and I'll just give the rundown of the facts that it gives. But according to the American Academy of Dermatology, most people don't know that skin cancer is the most common form of cancer in the United States. And just based on that statement, it is the most common form of cancer in the United States. More than 3.5 million skin cancer cases affecting 2 million people are diagnosed annually. So yeah, so 2 million people a year. And if you think about the size of our industry, we are not immune to that, especially with the fact that we work in the sun every single day. 
Current estimates are that one in five Americans will be diagnosed with skin cancer in their lifetime. So if you think about the size of your crew at your course, for us, we're about 60 during the summer. So that means if one in five of us get diagnosed, 12 people would have skin cancer on our crew. That's crazy. And the people that are most likely... Yeah. And the people that are most likely to get it are going to be those of us that work the eight-hour shift year-round, especially because we're there all the time. We're not just there for a few months. So for us, that puts the year-round staff, the assistants, the superintendents, the horticulturalists at the most risk. And then the last one here is that the five-year survival rate for people whose melanoma is detected and treated before it spreads to the lymph nodes is 89%. So hand-in-hand with the importance of protecting yourself from skin cancer is also identifying, getting a diagnosis, getting it treated as best as you can, because the survival rate, if it does get caught early enough, is quite high, which is really important. That doesn't mean that you can, like, not wear sunscreen and get it and you'll be fine because there is 2% of cases where it becomes deadly. But if it is treated before it spreads to your lymph nodes, 98% of people survive having it, which is an important factor to know as well. But for the blog post for this episode, we're going to put the link to this article as well as a link to identifying skin cancer. It's important to, one, protect yourself, but to know the signs and be able to identify it. Wear your sunscreen, kids. Wear your sunscreen. So hand in hand with sunscreen, because for me, I kind of see it as one of these. I also wanted to touch on PPE use out on the golf course, your personal protective equipment. And for me, the importance of using it is extremely high, but I know that that's not a general statement all around our industry. So I'm curious what PPE your course kind of mandates, what you use personally that you see as a benefit, and kind of what your threshold is for when you're going to use those things. So for personal protective equipment on all basis, it's kind of when you're using a weed eater you're expected to wear eye protection we even have like the the full clear shields that go over your face so that nothing hits you because your eyes are really important um there is like shoe protection that you know the slip-on shoe covers chainsaws always you have to wear chaps that's very important gloves eye protection all of that if i'm using a chainsaw i'm using all of that and i'm always wearing long sleeves too never short sleeves because that sounds god awful if a chainsaw hits you. Sounds miserable. And then, like, the biggest PPE use I find is when you're spraying. So, California has pretty strict laws when it comes to spraying, and it's different for different counties and different cities in California. So, for Santa Cruz, it is always gloves, eye protection, and then you have to wear the full Tyvek suit so you look like the Michelin Man or a Ghostbuster. I always wear Tyvek suit, I always wear gloves, and I always wear eye protection. I don't always wear a mask. Um, Certain chemicals like DAC Action, you have to wear a mask when you're mixing and loading. So you obviously follow the label because the label is the law. So always read the label first before 
you do anything because that's really important to protect yourself. When I'm spray hawking, I'll wear a mask sometimes, but most of the time I don't because I find it really hard to breathe and I probably should wear a mask when I'm, you know, spraying certain, there are certain products if I'm spraying like insecticides and herbicides, I'm wearing a mask. I'm not breathing in Roundup and I'm insecticides. I just don't mess with that. Put on the freaking mask. Um, granular insecticides, full freaking workup protecting myself. Those are really dangerous if you inhale them. But I'm not, um, there are a lot of people I know in the industry that don't wear PPE and they don't protect themselves. And I am not on that side because I think it's really important to protect yourself, especially, I don't know if you've had the same case where you're mixing a spray tank and something splashes up in your face and you're so glad that you're wearing eye protection because you're like, shit, if this would have gone in my eye, it would have stung and you could lose your vision. Or if you ingest it, like you can have negative reactions. You can have stomach aches, even breathing it in, like headaches, like I've gotten headaches, even with wearing a mask, like you see the consequences of your actions basically right away if you're not protecting yourself. So I'm always going to protect myself but my biggest ones are gloves, Tyvek suit, and eye protection, and long sleeves. But I gotta wear the Tyvek suit anyway, but always long sleeves. I don't want mm -hmm. any traces of my skin kind of being available to those elements. Yeah, 100%. So for us, we have um, head protection that we require. So a plastic insert in the hats that we provide for employees. So we have that bump cap. Um, always require closed-toed shoes. And then most of the basic PPE we provide, I haven't come across anything that I've needed that we don't have at work. People are welcome to bring their own, but for the most part, we try to provide everyone with everything that they need. And so the biggest ones, of course, are eye and hearing protection. Oh, I forgot so, about the hearing protection. That's another big one. <laughs> yeah, so we have, we provide over-ear, in-ears. We provide um, the face shields, the just regular glasses. And then we also have the over-glasses glasses. Because if you wear glasses, those are not PPE. They are just glasses. And they're not going to protect you from something. And so either goggles or face shield or the over glasses, glasses that cut off on the sides. Those are what you need for PPE as a glasses wearer, which I'm well versed in. For me, I try to wear my hearing protection as much as possible. If I'm operating something personally, my hearing protection is on. And it depends on the noise level or what's happening around me. If I'm going to wear it, as a quote-unquote bystander or someone that's just kind of around it but if I'm operating I have my hearing protection on because that's a big one for me. I developed tinnitus after a couple of years of working at the golf course and I was like if I have tinnitus at 23 you can bet I'm gonna have tinnitus in my 60s so it's really important now for me to make sure that I'm using that hearing protection as much as possible. The eye protection is another one because I wear glasses. I always have to have the over glasses <laughs> and I've come home a lot of times from 
having a day of spraying or weed whacking or whatever it is where I have multiple layers going on on my head because I prefer the over ear protection as well. <laughs> and my head is like, just like my dogs are barking, my head is pounding. <laughs> Because there's a lot of layers of stuff going on, but it's worth it, right, is the big thing. We have the steel toe overlays if people need them. We don't require them for just weed whacking, but if you're using a hover mower or anything like that that's got the blade underneath, you have to have the steel toe overlays on. Gloves, for the most part, are optional, depending on what people are doing. Most people go out and get them anyways for themselves. It's the one thing that we don't provide. It's the one thing that has been suggested multiple times that we do provide to people. But I invested in a really good pair of work gloves that have the gel on. And that helped a lot, especially in the earlier days where I was walk mowing or weed eating and stuff like that a lot. Because I would wake up and my hands would be like cramped together overnight and so i know it was disgusting so having the gel palm really helped kind of diffuse some of that and that was a really good one and then yeah definitely spraying is one of the most important ppe uses one of the most important times and like julian said it can never be stated enough read and follow the label because so many people don't. It's I totally get it. It's the heat of the summer. No one wants to wear long sleeves and pants while they're spraying. But it's on the label to protect us. It's on the label for a reason. If it's on the label, it's the law. So following those as much as it's like a dread. I agree with you that there is things that I will spray that I don't because it's not on the label. A lot of your fertilizers and stuff like that, if you're spraying or working with those, it's not. You know, your gloves and your eye protection while you're mixing and stuff, that's about all that it calls for. So those days are kind of nice when you don't have to get fully suited up, but the respirator or a mask is a really big one for me if you're handling herbicides, insecticides, fungicides, because if it's designed to target an internal system in a negative way, whether it's of a bug or a plant or something, it can also affect your internal system in a negative way. One thing that I think gets overlooked a lot as well is waterproof shoes while you're spraying and mixing. And the easiest way that I found to combat that besides wearing like hefty rubber boots and stuff like that, but is purchasing and wearing waterproof sneakers for everything around the course. And I know that me, you, and Cassie are all Vessi believers, and we love them. And that's what I'll wear for majority of the time. If I'm not in the suit, at least I have my Vessis on that are waterproof, and they're going to provide some level of protection. Yeah, the waterproof shoes is definitely a big one, because no one likes your feet being soaked in spray liquid and dyed blue if you've got dye in there because it is very uncomfortable and then it doesn't come out of your feet for a couple days, speaking from experience. But <laughs> when I was at Caves, we had these, um, they were just like rubber shoe, basically. Like they were just rubber and they went over your shoes and they had like some traction on the bottom of them. 
so you weren't like slipping and sliding. I mean, I did fall on my face on like slip with them once because they're not like full on shoes, but I really like those because you just put them over your shoes and then you duct tape them because they only had like two sizes. So they were, you know, they just bought two sizes, like medium and large. So you had to like fix them a little bit. But those were really nice. I find that with some of the shoe pullovers, there is like a heel. And I'm a big believer in flat-soled shoes, especially on greens. I don't like anything with a thick heel or a heavy traction. So I think that some of the shoe pullovers that we have, I tend to not wear. And I'll just wear my Vessies or my muck boots that are waterproof because they leave imprints on the greens, especially when I'm spray hawking the new greens. It's the last thing we want is to leave those heel imprints or make a scuff or anything. So I just always go in with waterproof shoes, my tried and trues, my besties or my muck boots, and they get me through it just as fine. And my feet aren't wet or blue at the end of it. Yeah, we also buy the, like the matching Tyvek pull on booties. So we'll get the suit and then the white booties that you can pull on over. And it's a whole fit. It looks real good. Not flattering on anyone, but at least you're protected. At K's, they were bright yellow. So it's like you'd walk around looking like freaking Big Bird with your bright yellow. <laughs> or a clown with like your bright yellow shoes and then your white pants. <laughs> At K's, we just had to wear like the white pants and then you always had to wear a long sleeve. Like you didn't have to do the full Tyvek suit. I guess like Maryland, the laws, I mean, everywhere it's different. But California, <laughs> it's the full Tyvek suit. Anytime I'm wearing it, the crew's like, Ghostbusters! And I'm like... <laughs> Yeah, I'm sweating so much inside of here. It's dripping down. Yeah, they get a little toasty. Um, Ghostbusters, The Michelin Man, Marshmallow Girl. Yeah. Those are some of my favorites. Um, Michelin Man. But I kind of like enjoy putting it on. It feels like I'm suiting up for battle. It feels very you know, official. I'm like, I'm like putting it on. I'm walking around. I've got my whole shit going down and i'm like let's go yeah the thing for us is because we only use it for such a limited number of applications like if we're applying dacanil with like a wand sprayer we'll use it if we're doing um an insecticide something like that we'll use it and then our end of year fungicide we'll use it and that's for the most part a long exposure thing it doesn't really have on the label of any of our year-end fungicides that it's required. But because we know we're going to be on a sprayer, spraying that chemical especially for such a long period of time while we put the course to bed, that is the main reason for using it for those applications because it's repeated exposure, right? Yeah. And as soon as you get into utilizing the same chemicals over and over again, you become just more aware that that's the same thing over and over you're more susceptible to it all that kind of stuff so it's definitely important to be aware of that and be using those important ppe avenues as well even if sometimes it's not required it might be the best choice 100 percent. so even though she's not able to join us for the full episode we are popping cassie in to say hi to everyone and she's just going to tell us quickly about some of the healthy and unhealthy habits that we can come across during a week of tournament prep 
because it is really different, the scope of work that you're doing, the hours that you're working, the amount of time that you're out on the golf course. So she's going to tell us a little bit about the habits that she sees and her experience and what she tries to maintain as healthy habits during those weeks where you're working so many extra hours, odd hours especially, trying to prepare for the tournament. Hello everyone, I am reporting to you from Hawaii. Unfortunately, due to the time difference and me being so far away and working in the evenings, I was unable to record live with Natalie and Julian. So I'm here to share the healthy and unhealthy habits of tournament work. I was unexpectedly whisked away to the Century 2024 tournament um, on the island of Maui at Kapalua. So that came about quite quickly. Thank you, Stephen, for letting me come on such short, short notice. I basically was asked Friday morning if I could be on a plane Sunday afternoon. So that ended up working out for me. So here I am and it's Friday night and we are deep in the tournament at this point, getting ready for championship Sunday, my favorite day of tournament week. And yeah, this is my fourth full week tournament. So I have a good amount of experience with this kind of thing. And there's a lot of unhealthy habits that kind of come with tournament work. Part of that is just because we start so early in the morning that for me personally, unlike the other two, I love to make myself breakfast, either a breakfast sandwich or like a scramble or something. And I make that and I eat it before I start my morning job at work. But we are starting at 4 to 5 a.m. and I don't exactly have the supplies like I would in my normal kitchen. So unfortunately, I just kind of have to go to work on an empty stomach, which I get pretty hungry by 8 a.m., which is when we have a hot breakfast that's catered to us, and that's really nice. I will say having that food is great. It's not necessarily always the healthiest, but honestly, I'm on a tournament week, so I can make do with what I have, and it's good food, so I am not complaining, but we're working two shifts every day, so I'm starting to get a bit tired, and I'm definitely starting to drink a little bit more caffeine. I'm not really a caffeine fiend, as some might say, during the average day. I will drink a cup of coffee here and there. And if I'm travel, if I'm really tired, I'll drink a Red Bull. If I'm traveling, I'll buy a coffee. But for the most part, I do not ingest a lot of caffeine anymore. That really has just changed in the last like six or seven months. But Honestly, I think it's for the better. I kind of wake up in the morning and I'm just ready to go. <laughs> um, I'm one of those people. Uh, so, yeah, my caffeine t- intake has been up a little bit. And I've also been drinking a lot more water. The average temperature here has been about like 75, maybe like 80 degrees. And it's humid, which I've been living in California for the last seven months. And I can tell you that I have not dealt with humidity like this um since my summer in new york so that's really been changing things for me a little bit but i have not become a weak californian i am still totally you know it took a second to adjust to but now it's fine so obviously with that humidity and the heat and the sunshine there comes the need for a lot of sunscreen and oxybenzone which is the active ingredient in most sunscreens is banned in hawaii due to it being toxic to coral reefs 
So I've been slathering on some zinc and that's been pretty nice. Unfortunately, also, usually when I work a tournament, I will do my morning shift, eat breakfast, and then I like to sleep between my two shifts because I'm usually very tired, but I'm in Hawaii and this is my first time ever here. So there's no way that I'm going to just sit in my room and sleep. Um, if I do come back to the, the condo that we're staying in, I usually just, Morgan and I have been sitting outside just talking and whale watching from our balcony. That's been really enjoyable. So yeah, I haven't been napping. I'm definitely starting to feel that catching up with me, but that's all right because I will sleep on my plane ride back. And that's pretty common, honestly. It just kind of happens like we at the end of this tournament every single day we have been going to a house uh run by simplot and some of our sales reps have been making us dinner so we all sit and kind of eat dinner as a family we've been watching golf <laughs> which is really funny because i mean we're watching the golf that's going on at the golf course that we're all here to work for so it's like all golf all the time but it's been pretty fun so yeah, I'll get into a little bit more about the tournament at a later time, but that's pretty much the ins and outs of it right now. So see y'all soon. Ready? Yep. Okay. So the last two topics that we're getting into today, I do have some thoughts on, but I don't have as much personal experience with them as Julian does. So for the most part, I'm going to let her take the floor and talk about her experience as she sees fit because story to tell with both of these things and I've listened and I really hope that you guys who are tuning in listen and find as much value in hearing her share her story as I have. So the last two things that we're touching on today are both alcohol and drug use and Julian like I said you've got a personal experience with both of these things so share what you'd like with the group and we'll go from there together. Yeah, so I had mentioned previously in episode four that I'm coming up on six months sober. And by the time this releases, I will be six months sober from alcohol. I have struggled with drug abuse in the past. And I'm not going to dive too much into that because it was before I really started to get into my career in the turf grass industry. But one thing that I was talking with, with Natalie and Cassidy, was the presence of alcohol at turf events. You know, you go to a conference and there's, you know, free drinks at the bar or you go to a networking event and the drinks are paid for. It's open bar and it's kind of always there. Like it could be 10 a.m. or it could be 6 p.m. And it's like more more often than not, people are drinking alcohol than, say, a Coke or a bottle of water. And I didn't really realize how much it consumed me until I stopped drinking. And when I think about going to conference this year, I am slightly anxious about it because it is basically a bunch of drinkers that all get together and they have their happy hours and they have their parties. And I think one thing in the industry that we like to not brush off, but it's, it is something that we brush off is when we do get to let loose and have our vacation. It's like, what do you choose to do? before I got sober, when I had a weekend off, I'd be like, oh, this is the perfect time for me to get hammered. 
because I don't have to wake up at 4.15 in the morning because I can sleep in until whenever I want and I can deal with my hangover without watering greens. Didn't form just because of the turf industry, because of many other opportunities that I had, which was moving cross country and living basically alone, having no family out here and kind of letting myself divulge into something. But then going to work events and having everybody else drinking, it's like, oh, I'm not the only one. I would always keep that thought in my mind. Oh, all of these other people drink the same amount that I do. So it's not just me. I'm, you know, I'm not the outlier here. Like I'm a part of the group. And that kind of just eased my mind as I went through basically the motions of slowly but surely becoming an alcoholic. And then after Pebble, I was like, no more. I was like, I, I was like, I can't keep going to these events and being like, I need a beer to function or cause it wasn't just one. It was six. It wasn't just six. It was 12. And then I would wake up and I would either still be drunk or I would be extremely hungover and go to work and kind of being vulnerable about this, this in the end could really compromise my career if I wouldn't have gotten sober in the sense that I would have just continued to spiral. And I'm not saying that the presence of alcohol in this industry is a negative thing, but I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. My dad's a superintendent and my dad still drinks and, you know, he doesn't have a problem and that's fine. And he's never going to have a problem, but I had a problem and I took action to fix it. And I think that's, what's really important is taking the action to realize that you're going down a bad path and that because it consumes these work events, that nothing was going to change if I didn't change it myself. Something that we've talked about a few times amongst the three of us is the level to which it's normalized in this industry. We have such a habit as the turf industry to normalize, especially heavy alcohol use. And I know that it's become relevant in my life before when we used to have beers after work and we'd sit at the shop and have a couple beers and it was no problem we'd have a few beers and then we'd all get in our vehicles and drive home and that changed a few years ago when things started to get out of hand with some people and a few beers turned into many beers and then we were leaving work after many beers and that was when I think about how unsafe that those actions that we were taking were it's so crazy to me that we ever thought that was a normal thing to do but it is very normalized and it is very just accepted and kind of a blind eye gets turned into gets turned to it a lot of times especially at the big events and so I know for me conference you know, the education of it has been negatively impacted because I've been out the night before or something like that. And that's when I think it's a great time to have the conversation about why are we so okay with it? Should we be okay with it? And how do we change the narrative around it from being so normalized to something that 
we can have open conversations about the heavy and excessive use of it that we see and how we can change to make people feel like it's not something that they have to partake in because even though it is at these events it's not the only thing at these events you know yeah with the events i feel like when i first started like networking it was calm my mind i was like i need a couple drinks before i can like actually start communicating with these people that i have i have no idea who you are and i'm supposed to be networking with you and i'm supposed to tell you about myself and i was early on in my career and now that i'm here yeah i'll be a little nervous but i can sit and talk to you about myself and what i do and what my goals and my dreams are for myself in the turf industry and you could just give me a bottle of water that's fine but it becomes a trend when it's everywhere it's like oh happy hour at this time come network it's like do people want to come and network or do they just want the free drinks that's where i find that there's more of a push for everybody to basically get drunk and it's just one big drunk fest essentially and there's not really a lot of it's not really networking anymore. Now it's just turned into a party. And if that's what you want to experience, then I understand that. But from someone coming from the perspective of someone that's sober, going to their first conference sober, I'm anxious to see how I will be perceived in that environment because I'm not drinking and I'm actually there to network and I'm there to catch up with people. So. I'll definitely report back to you guys how it went. And maybe there's a couple that I leave, I skip out on because honestly, I haven't been to a bar in six months. So if there's a bar, then I'm not going to it. Mm-hmm. And I know that Cassie and I and everyone in your circle will be cheering you on from a distance because experiencing that and the normalization of it and not necessarily the external, but the internal sort of pressure that you can feel in those situations where you aren't drinking and you know you are kind of the quote-unquote outlier with your bottle of water and stuff cheering you on keeping you thank you keeping you going but i am curious i know when we were at pebble we were staying in the dorms on site at spyglass hill and it was dry we were informed of that going into the tournament um actually no we were informed of that when we got to the tournament and we were given our we were given our welcome package and that information was included on day one and i think that was a surprise to a large number of the volunteers that were there and put a little bit of a twist on how people kind of perceived what their plans for the week were And I'm curious if that had any kind of impact on your week and going forward, if there was anything from that experience that week that kind of shifted or helped shift your perspective about getting sober after that. Yeah, so um, I brought a six pack with me before I knew because no one knew until we got there, essentially. So I had a six pack in my car because it's a tournament and I 
liked drinking. So I had to leave the six pack in my car. And we would um, not drink on property because we were respecting the rules, which they said that we were allowed to go out and drink, but we didn't drink on property. So I think it was, I want to say it was Monday afternoon and I didn't drink because we got in Sunday. I got there like early Sunday morning, I think. And it was like Monday afternoon. I didn't drink anything Sunday and I didn't drink anything obviously Monday morning because I didn't, don't drink in the morning. And I was craving a beer because I was running on very little sleep and I knew I had the six pack in my car. So I went on a drive and drank and then we came back and it was fine. Or I would walk across, I would go get the beer from my car and I would walk across the street, which was not technically property. And I would drink. And I think when I had a conversation with Andy Meadows, who Cassidy is with right now in Hawaii, but she's been sober and I was kind of telling her just about my previous sober, sober journeys. And I was talking about just like my relationship with alcohol and she's like, you know, I don't drink alcohol and I make mocktails for myself. And I was like, you know, that sounds nice. Maybe I'll do a month sober, which was what my plan was originally. And then towards the end of Pebble, I started to really, me and Andy got really close and our conversations just, it felt like um, I was looking in the mirror at like what I could see myself being in a couple of years because me and Andy's a little bit older than I am. And when I think back about, I got sober July 9th, which was Sunday at Pebble. I left Pebble Beach. I didn't have anything to drink that day, and I haven't had anything to drink since July 8th, technically. But July 9th is my, was my final decision. But I think back on the jittery shakes I got and the cravings and needing to go to the liquor store to get a six-pack of beer or a 12-pack of beer or wanting to drive somewhere so that we weren't drinking on property. That was the biggest red flag in my brain that I couldn't go a week without drinking a week for a tournament, very high profile tournament. Like I couldn't go a day without, I need to leave this dorm so that I can go have a couple drinks so that my hands stop shaking and that I stop thinking about it. And that to me was enough for me. I did about a month sober, trying to change the relationship, and everybody says it. They're like, I'm going to do a month sober because I want to change the relationship. But after a month, I was like, I can't change my relationship because I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to go right back to where I started. And Pebble was really eye-opening for me in the sense of being in the turf industry, but the fact that it's what drove me to become sober. And then I'm curious as well, because you're coming up on six months, congratulations, but what your, what's changed for you? What's different now that you are sober? I guess I am, I mean, the biggest thing was like my sleep really improved, like my quality of sleep really improved. But if I'm not talking about like physical changes, 
my mind I don't I don't feel tied to anything like a lot of people who struggle with addiction know what that feels like and it feels like someone is you're climbing up a ladder and someone is always pulling on your foot and bringing you back down every two steps it's again one step forward three step backwards that's how it is and I don't have that anymore I don't feel like I'm being weighed down by the cravings or the urge or the wanting to be drunk or even just like the savoring of a beer like I don't have that anymore and I feel a lot just like more free and lighter and I feel a lot more like myself because I felt like when I was drinking I was kind of I was trying to kind of hide who I was because I didn't like her which is another like very deep aspect of it because again alcoholism and addiction will do that to you it screws with your brain in so many different ways and I've gotten to know sober me over the past six months and I really like her and I really like I like love myself now and I don't feel tied to anything or anyone because I do I just I feel like I can look in the mirror and be like I'm proud of myself for everything that I've accomplished not only in my career but like I don't want to wake up in 30 years and be a drunk who threw away every single one of her dreams that she sacrificed so much for I don't want that for myself I don't want to throw thousands and thousands of dollars away on beer and booze and hard liquor I was basically killing myself from the inside and now I feel more alive than I've felt before in the six months than I have in 24 years. That's incredible. It's, I, it's just been like the craziest journey. And I was telling my best friend Hannah the other day, I was like, who would have thought that I would have been the sober friend? Because me and her, we went through a lot together, just a bunch of stuff. And I always said, I was like, I'm never going to be sober. But it's like when you come face to face with your demons and what's actually holding you down, you have to make that decision. It's the best decision that I've ever made. Yeah, and I said it last week, but I'll restate it here just because it's it's something that kind of resonates is that making that decision for yourself and sticking to it and following this journey and this path it makes me in like a selfish way it makes me thankful because now i know that i get to see julian's future i'm excited <sighs> for my future too but i'm also i'm kind of happy that you and cassidy got to kind of see me towards the end of my drunkness my drinking and then you know leading up to pebble was probably the worst and then Pebble was really bad. But, like, you two were with it for the whole week. Like, I mean, you saw it. But then seeing how far I've come now, like, I'm glad that you guys were able to witness the before, the after, and the during. Which makes me really thankful for you guys. And the sort of gravity of witnessing that journey that you took and that you have been on is not lost on me and is not something that I take lightly because I feel very 
honored that I've been able to see you and witness you and cheer you on and call you a best friend during this time. I love you. I love you. Well, should we end it there? I just want to say one more thing before we end it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Anyone who is listening to this, please feel free to reach out if you struggle with alcohol abuse, substance abuse, anything of that nature. You can DM us, message us on our turf, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm always down to talk if you need someone to help you, if you want to start a sober journey or even implement a small sober routine because I'm here to help. And from what I went through and what I'm going to go through for the rest of my life, choosing to stay sober, if you're struggling in the way that I struggled, then I want to help you because that's really important to me as well.